thank you, Pastor McBride, for allowing me to speak today, preach. Um, today's message comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And the title is The Scandal of the King. So we'll uh, read the passage and then we'll go into a word of prayer. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Father, we pray that you would be glorified today, Lord God, that they would hear your words in my mind. Father, I pray that uh, those who are saved, Lord God, in here, that they would be equipped to and be further transformed and conformed to your image, Lord God. And Father, I pray for those in here who are not yet Christians, Lord. I pray that today will be the day of salvation. And Lord, last but not least, we pray for forgiveness as we forgive those who are wrong. And may the words of our mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm a fan of actor Liam Neeson. Uh, I'm a big fan of his. I love him in uh, Batman Begins as Rachel Gould, or did the voice of Aslan in Chronicles Narnia. Um, he also did Qui-Gon Jinn in Star Wars The Phantom Menace, but the role that really like made me a big fan of Liam Neeson was Taken. I don't know if anyone's seen that movie. Basically, it's like some secret FBI agent, right, and his daughter's kidnapped, and he somehow gets on the phone with the kidnapper and lets him know, hey, if you return my daughter, no harm will come to you, but if you don't return her, I have a special set of skills that make me a nightmare for men like you. And if you don't return her, I will find you and I will kill you. And I remember thinking to myself watching that movie like, dude, this is a bold man say that to your daughter's kidnapper. He pretty much solidified his role as like in the same category as like Shaft or Chuck Norris. I'm like, this dude's a bad guy, right? So I loved him. So imagine my surprise one morning when I wake up and I turn on the news and I see that Liam Neeson um, has made some pretty racist comments. So as a black fan of Liam Neeson, I'm pretty shocked by what he said and he's long since recanted of that. But a lot of people discussed it, uh, articles were written on it, because it was a scam. People were really surprised at what he had said. But here's the thing. I think that we're too easily, it was a scam. That's the reason why so many people were discussing it. They were shocked, right? But I think we're too easily captivated by all of these lesser scams. And the reason why I say that is because here in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, 
We have the greatest and juiciest scandal of all time. And we hardly recognize it, we don't discuss it, we don't think about it, we don't talk about it. So this morning, we're going to look at three points. The king's scandalous holiness, the king's scandalous forgiveness, and then the king's scandalous commission. The king's scandalous holiness, king's scandalous forgiveness, and the king's scandalous commission. So our first point is the king's scandalous holiness. In verse 1, we're, we're taken up into the heavenly temple alongside Isaiah, and we're given a, a pretty shocking view, because there, seated on the throne, high lifted up, is the Lord himself, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And it also says that the train of his robe, it filled the temple. In ancient times, the train of the robe was the long back portion of the king's robe, right? So, so basically, Isaiah is describing for us in terms that we can understand and, and grasp. He's describing the royalty and majesty of the Lord. And more than that, he's giving us the identity of the one sitting on the throne. It's the Lord and the king of the entire universe. It's God himself. And in verse 2, we see that around the Lord, the seraphim, which is a type of angel, and they're proclaiming to one another, holy, 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 is the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And to be holy, I think we use that word so often that it loses its meaning, right? We hear it so often, it kind of doesn't strike us the way it would have stricken, uh, you know, the, the Jewish reader at the time. But to be holy is to be set apart. And God, in his transcendence, he's set apart from his creatures, us, but also his creation. And this is the first part of the scandal. The first part of the scandal is that there exists a God who is not like us. And this is scandalous because we as human beings, naturally, we hate a God who is not like us. We naturally want a God who's just a bigger version of us. We want a God who's like the genie in the Latin, a God that we can control and manipulate, that we can bend to our will, right? We can rub the side of the lamp and say, well, God, we want you to do X, Y, and Z, and that's the kind of God we want. But instead, we see a God who can't be controlled. He can't be manipulated. And in fact, the scripture says that my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. My ways, they're not your ways. I'm not like you. I'm holy, set apart. He's the perfectly holy Lord seated on his throne in his heavenly temple, as this passage shows us. And this scene in heaven, it's, it's pretty powerful. We're seeing the holiness and, and the glory of the Lord on display. And in verse 4, it talks about the smoke filling the temple, which it, it indicates his visible presence. So with that backdrop of the Lord's holiness and glory, we move to our second point, which is the king's scandalous forgiveness. So Isaiah, right, he's standing in the presence of the great king, the king of heaven and earth, in the most holy place in the heavenly temple, his throne room. And here's something I want you guys to think about for a quick second. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, it says that in the tabernacle of the wilderness, God's presence was so intense that when Moses, right, who God said was his friend, right, Moses himself couldn't even enter the tabernacle because of how intense God's glory and presence was. He had to, he couldn't get in. But here in this passage, 
Isaiah is in the very presence of that glory. The very presence of his holiness. I remember, um, I'm from El Centro, which is about two hours east of here. I was born there. Moved to San Diego when I was younger. And I remember my wife and I were uh, on our way to El Centro for a funeral. And it's at night, and you know how it's, you go on the 8 East, and uh, when you're driving, I don't know if you've driven in the dark through, like, you know, the desert or the wilderness, so to speak, but in the, the background, on the sides, we see the mountains. And the mountains look pretty scary because it's dark, but you can see them still a little bit. A little bit. So I'm talking to my wife, and I go, babe, can you imagine being a, a Hebrew at Mount Sinai? And, and there's thunder, there's lightning, there's the mountains on fire. You can feel the heat. And God tells you, I want you to come here and talk to me. What did they say? They said, listen, Moses, uh, we'll sit here, we'll hold down the camp, we'll pray for you. You go talk to God, and then you come back and tell us what he says, okay? Because they're terrified, right? So as me and my wife are driving, we go over the hill. You guys, I kid you not. On the side, the mountain that we are passing is literally on fire. Now, I know I should say I was brave, but I wasn't. We're like, let's get out of here. Go, go, go. We're terrified, right? We're like, this is creepy. <clears throat> but imagine that. Imagine being there at the Mount, at Mount Sinai, seeing that, hearing that God's told you to come here. And guys, Isaiah's experiencing that. He's in the presence. He's in the middle. Think of being in the eye of hurricane. He's in the eye of God's glory and presence. So, what is his response to all that he's experiencing, that he's, he's hearing and seeing? What does, he, what does he do? He cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember what the Word of God says? No man can see me and live. He said, I'm done. I'm, I'm seeing the King. What was me? Isaiah's response is to declare in light of God's holiness, he declares his and his people's unholiness. He declares basically that he's a sinner. And notice that he mentions a particular sin. It's not just a general sin. He's, he's noting, he mentions a particular one. He says that he mentions the sin of his and his people's lips. The angels are flying around and they're using their lips to praise God and basically says the contrast, we have and I have it. He knows that the Lord's holiness means that he deserves his justice and his wrath. Now some at this point may say, well that doesn't seem fair. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime here. That he deserves, because of the sin of his lips, he deserves his justice and his wrath. That, that doesn't seem to match up. And you know, one thing I, I do is I go to college campuses and beaches and I share the gospel, open and preach, talk to non-Christians about Jesus Christ. And I hear this objection sometimes from non-Christian uh, students or non-Christian people. They'll say, just because I sin doesn't eternity in hell, that doesn't seem to match up. And how I respond to them is that the reason why it doesn't seem to match up is because we as a people, we have too low a view of God's holiness. Let me describe what I mean. For instance, let's say I have three sons. Let's say I lied about this, right? It's fine. Let's say I lied. It's wrong, right? But really, what can you do? Nothing. Let's say I lied to my wife. I can sleep on the couch or I can get divorced. Let's say I lied to a boss, an employer. I can get fired. 
Let's say I lied to a judge. I can go to prison. You see, it's the same offense in every single case, but the punishment changes based on who I lied against, right? In the same way, when we use our lips in an unclean manner, through whether it be a lying or gossip or slander or blasphemy against God, we're committing this crime against the eternally holy Lord. And therefore, because he's holy and eternal, our punishment must also be eternal. So the punishment, in fact, does match and fit the crime. Let me ask you, uh, what happens when you take a dry, dead, brown, dried up leaf, right, and you place next to a fire? What happens to the leaf, guys? It burns, right? Because that's what fire does. It consumes, it burns when it comes to the contact with, right? In the same way, same manner, when someone who's guilty, when a guilty sinner, stands before the Lord, the Bible says they'll be consumed by the holiness of fire of his wrath because their natures are diametrically opposed to one another. This is why the Bible says that God is a consuming fire. And even though we don't like to think about this, we don't like to discuss it, we like to just think about God's good attributes, right? His kindness and his mercy and his love. But the Bible says it's holy, holy, holy and he has wrath. And the Bible says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing. Outside of Jesus Christ, it's absolutely horrendous for anyone to stand before God in his wrath. And Isaiah knows this. He knows what he deserves and he basically shouts out, I'm about to die. This is it. But I want to ask you guys a question this morning. What does the king do? What does the king on the throne do? He sends one of his angels to take a burning coal from the altar in the heavenly temple. And the angel places the burning coal on Isaiah's lips. And what does the angel say to Isaiah? Is it a message of judgment? No. It's a message of forgiveness and cleansing. I like the way that the uh, NLT puts this. It goes, the angel says to Isaiah, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. But wait a minute. Hold on. If God is truly holy, how can he just forgive Isaiah's sin in this manner? How can Isaiah's sins be atoned for without any type of sacrifice? We know from the Bible, right, from the Hebrew Scriptures, that uh, from the beginning of the Old Testament, God instituted a, a, a weekly, uh, like a daily, a yearly sacrificial system, right? And what that was supposed to do is that that animal sacrifice would temporarily cover and ceremonially clean the people of Israel so that God could have fellowship with them. Yet here in this passage, we don't see any sacrifice on the heavenly altar. So how is he able to be forgiven and cleansed. And to compound the problem, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, God says this. He goes, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And yet, when we read the passage, what did God just do through the angel? He just leaves Isaiah punished. So when I read this, I'm like, well, Lord, you, you say you won't let the guilty person go unpunished, but yet you just let a guilty man who just admitted to his crime, you let him go free without any type of punishment, 
without any type of sacrifice. Is this really consistent with you being this holy God and judge that you say you are? That you just turned kind of a blind eye to Isaiah's sin? It seems as if this right here is the ultimate religious and political scandal. That the Lord himself, maybe, just maybe, God himself is not really holy, just, or righteous. But that he's unholy, he's unjust, and corrupt. But is this really the scandal? When the angel touches his lips with the burning coal, and Isaiah's sin and guilt are removed, it's pointing forward to the reality in that one day, the, the reality that one day, the Holy Lord himself, the transcendent God, would one day leave his very throne and would come near to us by stepping down into the mess we've made and then take that mess onto himself. Isaiah was allowed to go free from God's presence because 700 years later, the Holy Lord who was seated on his throne in Isaiah 6, who John the Apostle says in John 12, 41, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He would be sacrificed on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the final sacrifice. And not just for Isaiah and Israel's sins, but for the sins of the nations as well. He would die for our sins. The Lord's death on the cross wouldn't just temporarily cover Isaiah's sins like these animal sacrifices would. But no, his sacrifice, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, would be eternal. It, it, it would forever cover, forgive, and cleanse Isaiah and all those who put their trust in him. His salvation is eternal. Romans 5a says this, For God showed his love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And his victorious resurrection three days later is God's sign to all that he accepted his son's sacrifice fully on our behalf and on Isaiah's behalf. Jesus said, It is finished. To tell us that, right? It is finished. Your sin debt has been paid in full through my broken body and my shed blood. I paid the debt that you owed God. And then what does God say? What does the Father say? You know, I grew up in the black church, and when the pastor makes a good point, we say, amen, right? We let the pastor know we're with you, we're rocking with you, we love what you're saying, we say amen. I feel like God was in the black church because when Jesus is finished, God says, amen. And how does he prove that he accepted his sacrifice? He physically raises his son from the dead in actual time, space, and history. It's not just a story. It's not a myth. God literally, Jesus said, it's done. It's finished. And God says, it is finished. And he raises his son from the dead to prove to all of us that what Jesus said, who he is, and what he's done was true.
that the Son of God says, I will stand in your place condemned and I'll seal your pardon with my blood. So that we say, right? You guys, rest and rejoice in this truth. This should excite you guys. This should get you up. This should cause and motivate you. Now listen, I know that when the Padres, a horrible team, when the Padres, I knew that wake you guys up. When the Padres win, we say, hey, when the Chargers make it to the AFC Championship and they lose, we say, hey, praise God, right? But this should cause us to be more excited. This should get us up. This should make you want to serve God because Christ has done it all in my place. And I relate to God as a Christian, not based on my own merit or work, but based on the merit and work and worth of another, Jesus Christ. But I, I want to change lanes, so, so to speak, and say, if you're not a Christian here, and I, I would hope everyone is in here, but I think we know from experience that everyone who sits inside of the church has come to Christ. If you're not a Christian, I, I want to plead with you to see yourself in light of God's holiness. To see all the ways and times you've broken God's moral law, which is sin. You, like Isaiah, like all of us sitting here, we're guilty. By nature, we're guilty. And outside of Jesus Christ, we deserve God's justice and wrath in the lake of fire for our sins against him. There's no way to get around that in Scripture. And yet, just like Isaiah, this is the good news. The Lord can forgive, cleanse, and save you to today. Jesus not only lived the perfect life that we needed, but he takes on our imperfect life on the cross. We broke his law and he paid our fine. So today, I plead with you to turn from your sin to the God who loves you. And to do so by putting your trust in Jesus alone. Transfer your trust from yourself and what you do to Jesus and what he's done on your behalf. And if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart, same thing I tell people on college campuses, I say, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart, and you know that what is being spoken to you is true, don't ignore him. Don't ignore him. Don't delay coming to the Lord. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Come to the Lord for salvation. And if you have any uh, questions or you want to know how to, ha uh, how to do that, talk to Pastor McBride. Talk to one of the elders. Come up and talk to me. I would love to talk with you more about that. But Parkside Church, this is the real scandal of the king. This right here. Not that God is corrupt, because he's not. It's that he saves sinners by faith alone, not by any of our good works. That by the work of Jesus through repentance and faith in him, his holiness and innocence that we need to stand before God is given to us as a free gift. Parks, I want to ask you guys a question. What king is like Jesus Christ? What king says that you're guilty and I will give to you what you need because of my love for you? There's no king like Jesus Christ. There's no God like our God. And this leads us to our final point. The king's scandalous commission. You know, there's a story told of uh, this, this really great, good African king. And one day, his general comes to him, and he says, My king, there's been rumors of a uh, revolt in the kingdom. Someone is planning to kill you and try to take your throne. So the king says, 
You know what? Find out who it is. Find the leader. And let the entire kingdom know that whoever is found guilty of leading this rebellion and this revolt will receive 100 lashes without mercy against their bare skin. So the general goes, and about a week later, he comes to the king and says, My king, we found the man responsible for leading the rebellion. But the king notices that the general looks very sad. So he thinks it's weird, but he's excited. He's happy that they found the one, right? And he goes, General, take me to him. I want to see who it is. So the general takes him to the prison cell, and right before he lets the king in, he notices, the king notices again that the general's sad, extremely sad. But the king says it's okay, and he walks into the jail cell, and as soon as he enters and sees the person who's guilty, he understands why the general was so extremely sad. Because sitting right there in the middle of the prison cell is his baby brother. The brother, who the king thought had a good relationship with him, they grew up together, he loved him fiercely. The brother was going to kill his own brother to take over the throne. So the kingdom hears this, and they go, there's no way, we know how much our king loves his brother. There's no way the king is going to just make, uh, give, give him a hundred lashes. He's going to go back on his word. There's no way this is going to happen. But the day of the judgment and punishment comes, and the brothers led out to the courtyard. The kingdom gathers to watch. And the brother is stripped and tied to the post. And the king comes out and says, I know I said 100 lashes without mercy will be given today. I'm a man of my word. And 100 lashes will be given today. But right before the general starts to whip and lash the younger brother, the king takes off his own garments. And he has the general tie him to the post next to his brother. And he looks to the general and says, do what you must. And the general takes the whip. Instead of bashing and lashing the baby brother, he lashes into the good king. And as the king is yelling, as his blood is flowing, he's looking into the eyes of his baby brother. The baby brother is weeping because in the eyes of the king, he doesn't see anger or wrath or judgment. He sees love and his mercy. And as the king drops to the ground after his lashes, he walks, he crawls to his brother, and he embraces his brother. And he whispers to him, I love you, you're forgiven, I love you, I've taken the punishment. And then he does one more thing that the whole kingdom says is scandalous. He takes off his own royal ring, and he places the ring on his baby brother's finger, and he says, today, not only has my brother been pardoned, but he becomes co-heir, co-ruler, of the kingdom with me. You guys, in an even greater way, not only does Isaiah receive this cleansing and forgiveness from the Lord, but like the baby brother in the story, he receives the royal ring, so to speak. He receives the commission from the king. The Lord, in life, all he's just done for Isaiah says, who, will, who, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And when Isaiah, who is still overjoyed by what just happened, he wasn't destroyed by the Lord, but he was pardoned, he can't help but to say, here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go for you. In light of everything you've just done, I'll be the one to go. And guys, like Isaiah, in light of all that our Heavenly Father has done for us in Jesus, when we hear Jesus Christ say, 
in an echo back to Isaiah 6.8, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We can't help but to say, here I am, send me. Isaiah was called to be a prophet of God to Israel. And we too were called to take the Lord's scandalous message of salvation to those across the street and those across the sea. We're being sent corporately as Christ's church and as individual Christians to a rebellious people whom God loves, and yet tragically, they're still on their way to hell. When the angel touched Isaiah's lips with this cold, that's pretty significant. Why? When Jeremiah the prophet was being commissioned as a prophet of God, the Lord touched his lips and put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. Same way, when Isaiah's lips are touched, it's symbolic of the Lord not only purifying his lips, purifying him, but he puts his message in Isaiah's lips, right? So likewise, our Heavenly Father has not only cleansed us with the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, but he's also touched our lips with the gospel. He's placed his message of salvation in our mouth so that we can serve him by telling people about him. And for some of you, I know some, I've spoken to uh, quite a few people who go, well, Anthony, that sounds great. But who stayed home? How am I supposed to share the gospel, right? Or I'm a full-time student, I'm busy, right? Or I work so much. How, how am I supposed to tell people about it? First of all, all those duties are noble tasks given to you by God. But for like instance, for some who work so often and they work so long hours and they're always working, perhaps you treat your co-worker to lunch and you share the gospel that way. Perhaps if you're a student when you have downtime and you're building these relationships and friendships, share the gospel that way. Or for stay-at-home moms, one thing I've said is, hey, you're out there with a lot of non-Christian moms as well, play dates, and you're forming relationships with all these different families. <clears throat> Share the gospel that way, in the context of those relationships. Either way, no matter what your vocation is in life, pray and ask the Lord to open up the door for you to share his gospel. And I promise you, he'll answer He'll open up the door for you to be able to proclaim his message to those who need to hear it, those whom he loves, and to invite them into church. As I close, I, I want to point out that as a people saved by a scandalous king, we're called to be a scandalous people ourselves. We're called to be a scandalous people of gospel-filled forgiveness. A scandalous people of gospel-filled love. A scandalous people of gospel-filled witness and proclamation. And one of the clearest examples of this was a few years back when Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white nationalist and white supremacist, walked into a manual African Methodist Episcopal Church on uh, June 17, 2015. And he sat there with them for about an hour and had Bible study with them and worshiped with them and he prayed with them. And he actually said that they were so kind and so hospitable. He thought to himself, as he sat there, maybe I shouldn't do this. But he still did it. Because right as they were getting ready to end, he pulls out a gun and brutally murders nine of our African-American brothers and sisters in cold blood. At the court hearing, the uh, families of the victims gathered. The judge allowed them to gather to speak to Mr. Roof before judgment was given to him. 
They repeatedly told him that although they were angry, which they have every right to be, and although they were extremely heartbroken that their loved ones were brutally taken from them inside of the house of God, that they forgave him, that they loved him, and that they were praying for his soul, praying that God would still save him, even after what he had just done against their relatives. When the non-Christian world heard this, I don't know if you guys saw any articles or watched the news stations, but I remember watching and listening and reading what they were saying, and they were shocked. I remember one non-Christian commentator goes, I don't understand how they can just forgive this man after what he just did. I don't get it. They were shocked by the scandalous people showing forth love, forgiveness, and proclaiming the gospel through their words and through their actions, showing forth the effects of being Christian. This is the kind of scandalous people we're called to be, a people that the world looks at and says, you guys are strange. How is it that you guys love your enemies so well? How is it that you treat people with so much dignity, honor, and respect? How is it that you guys believe in this message, right? That, that God forgives and saves because of his love and because of his son. This is the kind of scandalous people we have been called and are being formed to be. Our actions and words should point to our king. So as we go forward from this place, as we go forward, not only our gospel identity, but our gospel mission, let's remember the promise that King Jesus has given to all of us. He says, go, and I will be with you even until the end of the age. I'll always be with you. So may we go forward in Jesus' power, resting in his promise, telling others of the greatest and juiciest scandal of all, that the Holy Lord who was slain and yet lives again is the one who scandalously saves sinners so that one day we can all gather around his throne and sing the song of Revelation 5-9. For you, Jesus, were slaughtered. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation 